Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. My next guest is Tara Swart. She is a physician, neuroscientist, executive advisor, and senior lecturer at MIT in the Sloan School. She's also the author of the best-selling book, The Source, The Secrets of the Universe, The Science of the Brain. Tara is passionate about disseminating simple, pragmatic, neuroscience-based messages that change the way people live and the way people work. She has a particular interest in intention or manifesting intention, which of course is a uh, topic that I'm very interested in. So without further ado, Tara Swart. I grew up in, in London in the 70s and 80s, and my parents were first generation immigrant Indians, and I was their first child. So there was a lot of expectation on me pretty much from birth. And by the time I was two, they were already calling me Dr. Tara and basically had decided that I would become a medical doctor. Luckily, I was good at math and science. Um, but when I look back, I actually think I was really good at languages and I was good at geography and history as well. So I'll never know what else I could have been. But I you know, dutifully went on that path. I went to medical school. Quite early on in medical school, I became very attracted to the neuro elements of every topic, like neuroanatomy, neurophysiology. Um, and so I ended up in the middle of medical school doing a PhD in neuropharmacology, thinking I would become a neurologist. I'm also a bit of a mini you, Jim, so it's quite funny, the story. Um, however, I then decided to, when I went back to the clinical school, I was more fascinated by psychiatry. So, you know, the workings of people's minds, because at that time, that was kind of not really understood that the mind and the brain were, you know, how connected the brain and the body and the mind was embodied and all that sort of thing. So in psychiatry, in the UK at least, there have been these debates about should psychiatry be in the general hospital? Should it be in a separate building? Obviously, you know, we've been through having what were called asylums. So that discipline itself has been through a lot of chaos, you could say. So I did that for seven years. I, I cared very deeply about my patients. So when the idea of leaving medicine came into my mind, it took me two years to make that decision. So around 2007, I had discovered coaching, which seemed to me to be very much about focus and discipline, which were you know natural traits for me, but also very zen and also with transferable skills from psychological medicine. So I decided to make that move. Having pondered it for a long time, I sort of did it quite suddenly. I was working in Bermuda, so I moved back to the UK. I, I quit my job on the Friday and I started the coaching course on the Monday. I lived with the parents of one of my best friends for six months and my marriage was breaking down at the same time, a marriage of over a decade at that point. So it was... A very challenging time. I remember walking across the street. I was working as an office manager in the city, the financial district, walking across the street and thinking, I'm not a doctor anymore, but I'm not a coach yet. So what am I? You know, with my experience, my clinical experience, that I was having some sort of existential crisis um, and that this was not good. So yeah, I would say that's the backstory. And from there, I've got divorced, built a business based on neuroscience and leadership development, 
and written the source as well as some other books before that. Just to talk about coaching for a little bit, what do you think, if you will, is the greatest challenge for leaders to reach their peak performance or, if you will, what limits them from doing so? I can only speak to that through my lens. And obviously, I came as a former psychiatrist into coaching and financial services during the global financial crisis. People were dropping dead of heart attacks and throwing themselves off tall buildings at this point. So I've always specialized in managing extreme levels of stress for executives. So I would say that that's the biggest thing that holds people back from reaching their potential for all sorts of reasons, psychological, but also you know, physically stress literally can lead to, to cell death and inflammation. And so that's very challenging for the brain and the body. In the early stages, so this is in the last 13 years, I'd say in the first half of that, emotional intelligence was a big issue. People didn't really rate it, especially you know, in terms of leadership. And then the really lovely thing is that in the second half, it became more about things like building mental resilience, building intuition. And so that's you know, much more positive and, and interesting to work with. So I would say that it's the balance of managing stress and building resilience and learning to rely on your inner self, not just all the things that you've been taught or are expected of you, which, of course, was mirrored in my own personal journey. What part do you think fear plays in this? I think... You know, we know as, as sort of, you know, neuroscientists or in that area that fear is the most basic human emotion. It's there to, you know, protect us and, you know, ensure our survival. However, I feel that in the modern world, particularly, it's, it's just taken over and it's, it's really the biggest driver of what you do and don't do, but not in a good way. It would be so much better if we were making those decisions based on love and trust and joy and excitement rather than fear and shame and anger and, you know, those sorts of emotions. So, yeah, it feels like there's a sort of battle in people's brains between those things. But if you're not well informed enough about how you can manage those emotions, then it's, it's just so difficult to do anything. And that's why emotional intelligence was, you know, a huge area of my work. Well, in my own uh, experience, and I have been involved in a little bit of coaching and giving uh, talks to corporations, you know, I always paint this picture of fear versus love. A lot of individuals who end up reaching these heights of what society would call success, whether it's positions of power, influence, money, uh, a lot of them have been driven by their own insecurities and their own fears. And then uh, in some ways, I would use the analogy, it's like, why does a bully act the way he does? Well, because he's in pain and he's hurting. While on some level, these individuals are, quote unquote, successful in leading their corporations, oftentimes, though, the, the, the driver which motivates them is this fear narrative, and that actually uh, affects all the people around them. I'm sure you've gone to meetings where somebody's sitting there with their arms crossed and they have a scowl across their face and you're going, oh, this is going to be great. Maybe you can comment on that idea or concept. I completely agree with it. And I think that their own fears and insecurities have been instilled in them through their upbringing with the expectations from society and particularly from the main caregivers, which are usually the parents. I've seen so much worse than arms crossed in a scowl. I've seen people go red in the face and scream and shout and reduce people to tears. And, you know, I've had to take on clients that have 
behaved like that, where it's literally been, they're a great leader, they're good at what they do, but we can't have somebody, you know, a leader behaving like this anymore. So if your coaching doesn't work, we would have to let them go. And, you know, sometimes I felt like a schoolmistress being with the stakeholder in the business and this senior leader and saying, I can work with you, you know, and I can help you. And I, I know that you're capable of being so much more than this, but I can't work with you if you think it's acceptable to ever behave like that again. So I need that, you know, sort of promise from you from the beginning that that, that won't happen. I think having been a psychiatrist, honestly, in the early days, I used to say I've worked with psychotic murderers and rapists. So, you know, <laughs> I'm not you're not going to intimidate me with any of those sort of behaviours. I also would use a lot of role modelling. So obviously I'm a petite woman, which kind of is, you know, usually different to them anyway, but I would sort of, well, really, I what I think coaching is, is love and intuition. So I would care about the success of that individual in terms of their own happiness, which then leads to better behaviours, so much that even if I had to say some harsh things to them like that, they 100% knew that I had their back. And that's that helped people to change. And also just this idea that, you know, being super intelligent or successful doesn't coexist with being emotionally intelligent. I would, you know, sort of try to, to demonstrate that that's not the case as well. And the only other thing I would say in addition to this, Jim, is that having worked in the NHS in psychiatry, so one end of the psychosocial spectrum, and then having worked with some of the most successful leaders in the world, at the end of the day, they're all human beings with the same fears and, and anxieties and needs and ideas of what would make them happy. So I never really felt differently about those people than I did about anyone else. No, I think that's an excellent point because uh, a lot of people look up to individuals like this and they have this uh, in their minds, this idea that they don't have similar problems, they don't have similar insecurities, and geez, I could never be like that because I have X, Y, or Z. At the end of the day, and that's been my own experience, we're all the same. As an example, in my own mind, even though I'm 65, believe it or not, I still feel as if I'm in my 20s, mentally, as far as how I think. And I think uh, a lot of people during these formative years of how they develop to be who they are, occur in childhood. And then they carry the baggage, often these uh, false narratives that they repeat to themselves, and that stays with them. Even though they may be my age or in their 40s or something, many of them actually still revert to how they felt when they were much younger and how they were treated and how they were responded to. And I think, unfortunately, that's the driving narrative for many people. What, what are your thoughts on that? I'm 100% in agreement with you. And there's actually some really interesting research called Ghosts in the Executive Suite. It looks at some childhood concepts like values, roles, boundaries, expectations, secrets, identifications, and tries to raise people's awareness of what may have been sort of imprinted into their neural architecture during childhood in terms of those factors. And then to take a really honest look at how that's playing out in, in the, you know, in their life as a leader. Um, so I love, I love that, that model. That's really useful for people. And in my coaching, I always try to 
help people to see patterns throughout their life. So from, you know, different ages and also across their life. So how they are at work, their parenting style, if they're an investment, then their trading style, you know, how competitive they are in sports, you know, how they are socially and just try to draw out patterns because that's the most useful gift you can give people really. Well, that's interesting. You mentioned athletics, but in in some ways for some of these um, people in these higher level positions, they're hyper competitive. And uh, while certainly that, again, could be the driver for society's definition of success, at least one of my own experiences is that while they may be hyper competitive, it's their hyper competitiveness that actually creates a lot of their own problems. Absolutely. And like you said, you feel like you're in your 20s. I would say that a lot of these people feel like they're even younger than that sort of childlike. And it's, it's almost like you're still trying to please your parents and get that love that you needed, you know, and the validation that you needed as a child. I mean, another thing I was going to say is that I know that some of these models are a bit outdated, but if you look at Erickson's stages of psychosocial development, um, a bit differently to Freud, he says that there's a vice or a virtue at each stage. So sort of, you know, naught to three, three to five, five to seven. And I've noticed, this is anecdotal, but a lot of really, really successful leaders had some sort of childhood disruption between ages five to seven. The vice and virtue for that age period is industry versus inferiority. So industry, obviously, they then work hard. Sometimes it was to get themselves out of poverty. Sometimes it was just to be as good as their dad kind of thing. But the inferiority part is is also there. And that's what drives a lot of having to prove themselves and, you know, behind closed doors, feeling that people would like to see them fail. Um, So it's quite profound. Just to make two comments. One is actually when I said I felt like I was in my uh, 20s, uh, actually what I mean by that is that my outlook in the world today, I I don't feel as an example 65 per se, but I I think you're absolutely right because uh, when I sit down and reflect about some of my own actions, you know, I know they're driven by experiences I had at a much younger age, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. And, uh, and uh, some of the very painful experiences. What I find interesting is I used to think that there was a subset of people, in fact, the majority of people had perfect lives uh, and that my life was screwed up. You know, what I found is that's certainly not true at all. And people have a tendency to mask their past uh, because they feel they're going to be judged and they're terrified of being uh, judged. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? So fascinating. I have two thoughts. One is that a question that I asked people, and I asked it myself, you know, at that difficult period of my life was, well, no, I asked it a bit later, <laughs> was what, what are you still fighting for or fighting to prove that you actually don't need to fight that fight anymore? You know, and I've heard really, really senior kind of public figures say, I just want my voice to be heard. And it's kind of like, come on, how much more can someone's voice be heard than who you are? And lots of things from people like, you know, who've, especially who've come from a different social background than what a leader or a success, successful executive is who say, you know, but at the end of the day, I'm just, you know, that white trash hillbilly kind of person. And so they don't want anyone to know about it, but it's very prevalent for them. It's very front of mind for them that they're not from that social class. Um, but obviously they've you know, done very well. So 
yeah, agree again. Well, this is, I think, the idea of, of self-compassion because people uh, so often have a tendency to be very, very hypercritical of themselves. And of course, two things happen, I think. One is when you're in that position, it's all about you. You're not really seen outside of yourself. And, and the longer you're in that position, of course, this uh, creates this rumination, which only exacerbates you know, the problem. And the other thing that happens, I think, is when you're so hard and critical on yourself, then that has a tendency to not be able to look at other people's problems and potentially their own suffering. And then you're very hypercritical of them. You know, one of the comments you made, which I thought was interesting, was it was this idea that you're highly judgmental. I remember I gave a lecture one time about this topic and self-compassion and a woman stood up and it was actually at a very large nursing conference. And this woman who was in her 50s, you know, she had her RN degree, she had a PhD, she ran nursing in a major hospital and, you know, she was quite accomplished. What she said was, and she started crying actually, she said, you know, I've accomplished this, I've accomplished that, but I realized that everything I did was based on my father telling me that I would be nothing. It's so sad because, as you mentioned earlier, if somebody said, you know, listen, you're brilliant, you're going to do anything you want to do, I'm right behind you, I'm there for you, uh, I'm excited about your possibilities, you don't have to carry this horrible baggage, you know, throughout your whole life trying to prove something. And I know a few people like that who, you know, were genuinely brought up in unit families that were super supportive and the handful of people that I know closely who had that have done really well but I've learned that in a way I'll take myself as an example that if I hadn't had to deal with some of the things that I had had to growing up I don't think I would have done some of the things that I'm really proud of now because my life would have been easier if you know what I mean it's taken me a long time to to get to that place and kind of be okay with it. But I think that, you know, whether it's your job titles or your qualifications or your smart suit, they're all kind of masks, really. So, you know, if I look at you, for example, Stanford professor and neurosurgeon, I would never have guessed that you'd had the childhood that you had, because that's not what a Stanford professor and a neurosurgeon comes from. And so, you know, I do feel that being able to say I'm a neuroscientist and a medical doctor and I went to Oxford and blah, 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 gave me those masks for a long time. But I'm interested in getting rid of those masks and actually being fine just with who I am. And I think, isn't that ideally what everybody would, would love? That if they're not wearing their smart suit and they're walking down the street in a t-shirt and shorts, that they would still feel valued in the same way. and But what that comes down to is that you must value yourself like that and not care about what you look like. And you know, some of the best things in my life have happened to me when I look like this with a hoodie and glasses and my hair scraped up, no makeup. You know, it's, it's funny. My son, he's 17 and he, I don't know for good or bad, he's into brands and he likes whatever a Ralph Lauren Polo thing or a particular type of shoe. So we'll go out and do something and I'll be in sweatpants and 
tennis shoes and a t-shirt. And he goes, how can you dress like that? And, and I said, because I don't care. <laughs> uh, be, and, and what I mean by that, and he and I have had some long discussions about this, you know, I am who I am. And if somebody wants to judge me based on how I'm dressed, well, it's not my problem, it's their problem. But I think you're right. I, I mean, the, the problem, I think, in modern society or Western uh, society is this horrible fear that you're going to be found out. And so the way to shield yourself is presenting these uh, marks of success. You know, I, like you were saying, I went to Oxford or I'm a professor at Stanford or et cetera, et cetera. And, and then you think that by holding that, you're uh, impenetrable from being judged. Of course, uh, what we know is that being vulnerable is highly critical uh, to, I think, one's ultimate growth as a human being, uh, to understand the value of that. I may have shared that story in our conversation the other day, but I was giving a lecture one time, and there were probably four or 500 people there. And uh, during that, I was telling them some of my own stories, and I my voice cracked, and uh, you know I shed a tear. And after this, uh, a woman comes up to me, and she says, I felt so sorry for you up there. You must have been so embarrassed about that. And uh, she said, I'm a psychiatrist <laughs> and a hypnotist. And if you come for me, if you come to me for three sessions, I'll teach you how to get over that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, uh, and I feel sorry for that person. Yeah. I mean, a complete lack of self-awareness and uh, the value of authenticity, because in this conversation I was having or, or lecture, uh, you know, I was talking about some very moving things. And as soon as I allowed myself to be vulnerable, the whole audience started crying. Yeah, right? of course. <laughs> because people so want to remove that, that uh, shield that they carry around with them. Uh, as you probably know, if you look at the attributes of people who live in what are called these blue zones, uh, where people live to over 100, while certainly diet is an important part, uh, the reality is these are people who have lived there from birth to death. They live in multi-generational families. It's a small community. Everyone knows them. And the thing is, they know them, their good parts, and they know their bad parts, and they still love them. And this idea of growing up in this non-judgmental, accepting environment, I think, greatly contributes to uh, the longevity of these individuals as well. And I think this idea of being vulnerable, and uh, Brene Brown and others talk about this, is, is very, very important to truly sort of be yourself and uh, get all the benefits of truly being authentic and yourself. You probably know of the Google Aristotle study. I'm not sure I do. Tell, maybe, tell me what it is. Maybe I've heard of it, but don't remember the name. The Aristotle study was a idea to determine what makes the best uh, teams and what are the characteristics of a leader. Because what happened is it was the thought by the founders who, frankly, probably on some level have Asperger's or some variant thereof, but these are highly intelligent people, uh, frankly, without a lot of emotional intelligence. Uh, and their belief was that the only or the best people only came from the top 15 universities and in the top 5% of their class. And that's all they would hire early on. 
and as th- time went on, of course, they uh, acquired a number of companies. Many of the people in the companies didn't have those attributes. And so they were trying to say, what is the combination of things? And what's interesting is at the end of this $50 million study, I think that spanned three years, and which I can frankly tell you, if they gave me $10 million, I would have told them in five minutes. <laughs> but what they found out was that being non-judgmental, being authentic, showing your vulnerability were the keys to leadership in a successful team. And it had zero correlation with your grade point average. It had zero correlation actually with your domain experience. It had to do with you being able to connect, empathize with people, be there for them, make them feel comfortable, and and ultimately this create this uh, space of psychological safety. Absolutely. And I think just connecting this back and and slightly standing in defense of your 17-year-old son, I think that the ability to do that comes from a lot of personal inquiry, almost like that shedding of the skin of the snake that I mentioned earlier. And so, you know, I was like your son when I was younger. It it mattered, you know, sort of what you looked like and what you wore and things like that. But when I changed career, it came up for me in a really interesting way because, you know, as a doctor... I was told at Oxford anyway, dress like how your grandmother would expect her doctor to look. So you do it for other people. You do it to make them feel safe. And like, yes, this looks like a doctor, especially because when I first qualified, I looked about 15. So that wasn't very helpful. Um, <laughs> well, you still do. <laughs> <laughs> so, but when I changed career, I really wanted to fit in. So, you know, I just wanted to get like the sort of the black suit and the black dress and the right shoes and everything. And I remember just like really liking these patent shoes. And I I don't know what it was these two things. It was a pair of purple tights and a pair of black patent shoes. And I remember saying to an HR director, do you think it would be okay if I wore these, if I go to meet a coaching client for the first time? And he said, no. And so I was too scared to do it. But I remember thinking one day I'll be confident enough in this new job to wear purple tights or black you know, patent, patent shoes or both. And that, you know, that day did come, which was, which was really nice. Um, and I sort of think people are going to judge you on 150 stereotypes the minute they lay eyes on you anyway. So I'm bound to fail on some of those. So I'm not going to sort of get too caught up in it. But my two stories about looking like how I look now, and it's always the color orange for some reason as well, is um, I actually met my husband, the love of my life, um, Five years ago, a few days ago, actually, um, on a plane flying from Johannesburg to London. I mean, I just worked there for, for the week and I'd worked that day. So I just got changed in the office um, into my sneakers and my hoodie. And, you know, I'm, and I met my husband like that. So that was a good one. But I have a Stanford related story that wasn't such a good one. But it's not to do with Stanford. It was I was on my way to Stanford to give a guest lecture at the Graduate School of Business. And I flew from London to San Francisco, which is obviously a long flight and, um, you know, big time difference. So when I arrived, not only was I dressed extremely casually, but I also probably was really tired and a bit disorientated. And so at um, immigration, they said to me, you've put business on your visa. So what, what business are you here on? And so I said, associate professor at Stanford. And this guy literally looked at me and said, you're a professor at Stanford. And I just had this brain blip where I thought, 
you know, suddenly all my insecurities came flooding in and I thought, I know I don't look like one. I know I look too young. I know I'm wearing a hoodie. I, I, I know I shouldn't be here. And suddenly there was just voice in my head. The voice said, no, you do this to yourself all the time, but he's not going to say this to you. So I just looked at him and I said, yes. And he looked at me and I looked at him and it felt like an eternity passed. And then he said, what do you teach? And I said, neuroscience. And then he said, okay, then. <laughs> and then I left. <laughs> <laughs> Two things. One, getting back to my son. Uh, obviously, I love my son very much, and I understand this, like you, is a phase that people go through. And frankly, I went through. I guess what what I try to emphasize to him, though, is that there are people his age who are very worthy and nice who don't have the privilege that he has. And I think uh, he certainly understands that. And I and what I've tried to express to him is that. Yes, it's great to dress the way you choose and uh, have access to expensive things or relatively expensive things, but think about others at his high school uh, who aren't in that privileged position and understanding that they're wonderful people who don't have that or, or don't choose to have that and that they're worthy people. You know, this is the, in some ways, the idea of biases uh, that people have. You know, they judge you, as you were just saying to me, you go, well, I could never have imagined that. Now, the wonderful thing is you can use these titles you have in situations where you're manipulating your environment to do good or to try to accomplish something, and, but you know down deep inside it's all a bunch of bullshit. Uh, uh, and so I, I think that um, is very important. Um, in terms of uh, uh, <laughs> this guy who judged you, uh, it's interesting how this voice came back to you. And in fact, it's interesting because in some ways you're saying, well, it's okay for me to beat up myself, but damn it, you can't beat me up. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, uh, but I think uh, you have to have enough uh, self-awareness. And again, having lived through this idea of mental resilience and grit to make you move forward. Yeah. And I also kind of really learned through experience something similar to what you said earlier, which is you know, I was aware of that self-criticism, but I saw that under extreme stress, that leaked out onto other people and I didn't like that about myself at all. And so I thought, you know, I really wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. And that, of course, then helped me to to work on, you know, the root of it, which was that it was it was going on in my head and that was apparently okay. Yeah. And I don't think any of us completely overcome this um, insecurity or beating yourself up. You know, I think we can mitigate it and uh, diminish it. But I think it's sort of the nature of our evolution that these sort of negative things stick to us. Obviously, we've spent zero time on your book, The Source. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, maybe <laughs> maybe we can shift gears slightly and uh, talk about that. Uh, it's a very popular book. I've read it. And actually, it aligns with this idea of manifesting, uh, which I think is extraordinarily powerful. Uh, in some ways, these are techniques that I was taught when I was 12 that hugely impacted my own life. You mentioned the law of attraction in the book. You know, one of the challenges I have with that, and don't get me wrong, your book actually is very scientific and includes uh, a lot of the literature uh, based on manifesting your intention. But oftentimes when people use the law of attraction or you talk about the secret, 
I always think of it as a prosperity gospel. And I don't know if you know what I mean by that. You know, in the United States, you have a lot of preachers who say, well, if you just send me money, you're going to get it tenfold back. A lot of the aspects of intention in some of these books is, well, if you do this, you're going to be rich, you're going to be famous, you're going to have everything you want. (laughs) And of course, as we've just been talking about, being rich and famous doesn't necessarily get anything you want. Uh, It can make your life miserable because for many people who come from a background of scarcity, they have a belief that abundance solves all of their issues. And uh, it doesn't. In fact, for many people, it creates more issues. Well, interesting semantics. I think what I consider to be abundance, which is your self-love, your compassion, your belief in yourself and other people, your trust in the universe, that I think does make you happy. But material abundance, wealth, no, of course it doesn't make you happier. Um, There are very happy, rich and poor people and there are very unhappy, rich and poor people. Actually, I heard a Buddhist phrase. It took me a while to really get my head around it, which was, what is a rich man? He's a poor man with money. So it's a little bit like what we said about, you know, patients and leaders. They're still they're still people. Um, so, yeah, that, it was interesting. I mean, what I did one summer before I probably started writing the book was just look at those words like manifestation, visualization, you know, both of which are in your book um, and the laws of attraction and just see how much of this stuff can I explain with cognitive science rather than, you know, how they've been explained previously. And I was just really pleasantly surprised at how easy it was to explain most of those concepts through cognitive science. And I felt, you know, that with the way that the laws of attraction had been described before, which is if you think in a certain way, then these things will come into your life. It at least made sense that that should be looked at through a cognitive science lens if it was to do with your thinking. Um, And funnily enough, I actually had a, a call with someone today who said, Um, Can I just check if I, you know, if I understand manifestation correctly? Is it if you think about that thing, then it comes into your life? And so I said, it's absolutely not about (laughs) sitting on the couch, fantasizing about something and then thinking it's just going to drop out of the sky into your life. It's about using your brain power to create and grasp opportunities to make it more likely that those things will materialize in your life. And by those things, I don't mean you know, a big house and a fast car and lots of money. I mean, good health, good relationships, happiness, you know, a job or a career or a pastime that fills you with purpose. You know, those are things that you actually have a lot more control over than material abundance anyway. Um, and, And I sort of believe mostly that if you are able to manifest those things, if you have a good, stable, you know, family life, you're doing something that you really enjoy that's, you know, that has some meaning to it and you're happy and healthy, that you're probably, you probably are more likely to have material wealth as well. No, I, I think that focusing on, if you want to call it your well-being or w- what's necessary to thrive, creates the environment for you to have material wealth. I think the necessary component uh, for the happy group of people is that the driver of who they are isn't about the normal societal definitions of success, which is power, uh, wealth, position. 
And they achieve those things, but they're not attached to those things in the sense that that doesn't define who they are. You know, from my own position, and I was fortunate enough to be a successful entrepreneur as well, and uh, I had everything. The thing, though, I realized was at the end of the day, the driver early on was showing people that I was worthy by having these external things that define success. What I found actually was, and here I lived in a a huge penthouse. I had Ferraris, Porsches, all of this stuff. I was flying in private jets and I, I thought I was very important, but I would come home every day and be absolutely miserable because I thought the shame that I carried, the sense of inferiority would suddenly go away when I got all of these things or the next thing. And it, of course, uh, never happened. And it was always interesting because, you know, I had a group of friends who I grew up with or others who I periodically interacted with and go, man, you have it so great. You have this and you have that. It must be so amazing. And it wasn't amazing. It's funny. I tell people that, as an example, Donald Trump, for a poor person, uh, is the definition of a rich person. And what I mean by that is when you're poor, you think that these external definitions of success solve all your problems. And uh, of course, that was never the case. You know, a poor person looking at Trump, as an example, would sit there and go, he can say whatever he wants. He does whatever he wants. He has all this stuff. He has surrounded by gold. He has a private jet. Yeah, that's success. And nothing could obviously be further from the truth. For me, when I ended up going bankrupt and ending up $3 million in debt, you talk about different transitions in your life. It put me through this period of great self-reflection. And I realized, while I was never a bad person or selfish or anything, my orientation or how I saw myself ended up being I was trying to prove something. And it wasn't oriented towards being of service, having gratitude. And when I changed my perception, what I tell people is, you know, I had everything, but I had nothing to, once I changed my orientation, I had everything, but had nothing. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it really sets the stage. And in fact, when I was in that position of being 3 million in the hole, you know, I ended up having some stock in a company that hadn't gone public. And, uh, You know, I had made some commitments to charity, but it turned out that the lawyers hadn't completed the paperwork. And so I could have kept all of this stock. And of course, I was three million in the hole, but I ended up giving it away to charity. And it turned out to be a little more than I thought, $30 million. But uh, uh, the wonderful thing about that is it set the stage for all the wonderful things that have happened. You know, I was divorced at the time. I found a perfect partner. I uh, got to meet some of the most profound, respected spiritual and religious leaders. I uh, got to create this center at Stanford. I got to write this book. And uh, none of that would have manifested in the other state of mind, nor would it have manifested unless I showed generosity an appreciation. And so that change in orientation really made me appreciate what I had. And don't get me wrong, listen, I enjoy driving Ferraris and Porsches and living in a nice house. But I think the underpinnings of that are being a good human being, if you will. 
Absolutely. And I, I just want to pick up on one particular point that you made, because I think it will resonate with a lot of people, which is where you said, you know, I thought that if I had those things, the Porsches and the Ferraris, that I would be happy. And then it was the next thing, the next thing. I think that, you know, what I've also learned is that if your happiness depends on an outside thing, you will never be happy because it will always be the next thing and the next thing. And that's why even with your story of slightly mistakenly giving away all of that money, you could have kept a bit of it. You know, it's funny you say that. My wife, uh, we were being interviewed by the Wall Street Journal and my wife said, I don't mind my husband being generous. She wasn't my wife at the time, actually, but I don't mind him being generous. I just wish he hadn't given it all away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but what you got out of that, the appreciation that's yours forever. No, you know, no one can take that away from you. So I, you know, that's much more the root of actual happiness, isn't it? No, I think that's right. Uh, I think the other thing you mentioned Buddhism a bit ago. I think what creates suffering for a lot of people is attachment and uh, craving. And you know, when I talk about, let's say, an intention, which is what we're talking about, is it's a aspiration using the tools, if you want to say cognitive neuroscience or the innate strength we have within ourselves, with many people, which many people don't realize, that's the thing that really can make things manifest and make you feel whole. And, and it's the journey. It's not necessarily the destination because as you know, you can manifest certain things. And for whatever reason, it could be timing. It could be other aspects. It doesn't, it doesn't manifest and that's okay versus somebody who said, oh my God, I didn't get that. My life is ruined, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, I think it's not attachment, but I think it's actually acceptance. I think those are two interesting distinctions. Yeah. And I even think that part of manifestation is you know, abundance in its truest sense, which is that you notice the good things that happen. You notice when something you set an intention to unfolds in a positive way. And you know, again, some of the criticisms around the law of attraction and manifestation are that it's a confirmation bias. You know, you only report the good things and you sort of ignore it when it doesn't work. But, you know, within reason, that's not a bad thing because of the way that our brain works, which is it tends to focus more on the negative. So if you cultivate the sense of focusing on the positives and just not dwelling too much on the negatives or the near misses or whatever they are, that's actually really good for you. And then that breeds sort of more good things. So that's the part of abundance, I think, is really good. And, you know, but then, well, so just sort of relating this back to my book, not that we have to talk about it at all, but the book was about what I really learned and brought together at that time of personal crisis, which drew both from my science and medicine, but also from my sort of cultural heritage and the spirituality part of that. You know, one of the things that came out of that was, of course, gratitude, you know, practicing gratitude is there's just so much evidence that it's a you know, hugely beneficial thing to do, but also celebrating successes and listing accomplishments of yours. And they don't have to be the, the obvious kind of things that society think are huge accomplishments, but things that, you know, you're proud of that you've done, you know, something like changing career. I just think now with the year that we've all had, that being somebody who can pivot what they do at relatively short notice is a huge skill. But, but that wasn't, you know, it wasn't really something that people would have necessarily said before. And then interestingly, I spoke to 
the nose of one of the luxury designer houses, perfume brands. And she said to me, this is the year where people have understood the importance of your sense of smell in a way that they never have before. I think, you know, we all sort of think if I had an accident or a stroke and I went blind or deaf, that would be terrible. But I don't think we've ever thought before about losing our sense of smell and taste. But, you know, this year has has made us appreciate that. So I just think there are all sorts of good things that we've achieved that could be our own little secrets. They're not necessarily, you know, Wall Street Journal front page, but, you know, they're important for us to acknowledge because it goes back to what I was saying earlier about we're constantly striving to prove these things. We don't really stop enough and tell ourselves that you've done that, you've, you've done that thing, which, you know, then leads to just so much more positivity in the brain and that grows a virtuous circle. I, no, actually, that's a great term, a virtuous circle, because um, as you were just saying, we all, and sort of our lot as human beings, have this tendency to repeat negativity to ourselves. And by um, focusing, and I think this is a great thing about gratitude, by focusing on things in your life that uh, you feel are important or accomplishments of yourself that you're very proud of is in some ways a technique of being incredibly self-compassionate. And uh, when you're compassionate to yourself, when you're gentle with yourself, when you're self-affirming, this gives you a different lens to look at the world through. And I think that uh, oftentimes, uh, both in business and, and in our own personal lives, we're not as gentle as we could be. Uh, in fact, I, I was speaking to my son. I have two boys, uh, one's 12 and one's 17. But my oldest has a tendency to leave shoes laying around the living room. And I walked into the living room and literally there were eight pairs of shoes that he had deposited in different. <laughs> and I was a little bit irritated. So I he was in his bedroom. So I collected all the shoes, you know, this big thing of shoes. And I went in his bedroom and I I said, here, these are yours. And I dropped them on the floor. I was upset. And, uh, you know, he said, you come into my room and you do this. You could have just asked me now. Of course, I'd asked him three or four times previously to take care of these shoes. And then that set the stage for him getting angry, in part because he knew I should have done it, in part because the way I presented myself to him. But uh, then I left and sat down and then he came over and uh, said, you know, you're right. I should have uh, taken care of those. I'm sorry. Uh, and I didn't mean to get angry at you. And of course I said, I'm sorry. But again, you know, having more tenderness, we're gone in there and said, look, you know, the shoes are out there again, please take care of them. Why don't we do it together? And, uh, you know, I know it's hard for you because you get distracted in business. I think this is very important not to be as demanding, but to, uh, try to be a little bit more kinder or, you know, the Pope has this initiative about tenderness which at least in the United States isn't one a term that people use uh, very often. It is sort of being tender to another person. If you can look at the world through that lens and think of the other thing I, I think it's important is to actually put yourself in the other person's shoes repeatedly. Because if you do that, you know, we're talking about negativity bias and some of these other things and judging people. If you can look out at the other and see yourself in their position and how you would feel, uh, if somebody spoke to you the way you spoke to them or, or felt like you were going to, I, I think that can change everything. Yeah, I think that's really great. And 
one of the things that I have suggested to a few executives in the past is to think about applying the values that, you know, for them go along with attachment emotions like love and trust to their management and leadership rather than values that align with the survival emotions like fear and anger. No, I think that's uh, uh, absolutely true. Maybe uh, in our last few minutes, and I am cognizant of your time, maybe you can sort of give me three to five key points or important messages you think would be helpful from the book for our listeners. I would say that start by setting an intention. I think that we live our lives on autopilot and we're busy and distracted. And so we don't really get round to prioritizing the things that we really want out of life. So abundance and manifestation are, you know, big parts of the book. Um, we've sort of talked about those already. I also, in that section, talk about harmony, patience, and universal connection. So those things are, are good things for you, but they've got to be within the paradigm of being good in general, um, and they don't all happen overnight. I'm a big proponent of making what I call action boards, which is an actual collage that you make with metaphorical representations of how you want your life to be or feel, that you look at that regularly, you visualize those things coming true. And kind of going back to what we said about this negativity bias of the brain, there are a few exercises in the book that seek to overturn that negativity bias and move you into a more abundant mindset. And then actually something we haven't talked about at all, but again, is in the book and in Audible read out by me, are some meditation practices to help people, you know, feel like their best self, to release their burdens, to identify with someone that they admire or, you know, sort of future version of themselves. So I think that's quite a few things. I hope that was enough. No, that's perfect. Actually, uh, I think your website includes not only uh, about the source and your other books, but also includes uh, the meditation practices, or I think there's even a course there. Is that, if I recall correctly? There isn't a course there, but my new online program with MIT Sloan is coming out, Neuroscience for Business. I filmed the entire thing in lockdown from my home, and there's some meditations in that. I am working on a meditation app as well that um, isn't ready to come out yet, but will be shortly. So... Yeah, and there's lots of podcasts and videos on the website that people can, you know, access really easily as well. Yeah, you know, I think giving people tools that will help them manifest actually is very important. And I think as we've just been discussing in the latter part of our conversation, everyone has the ability to manifest. And I think in the context of how the brain works, uh, how we can train ourselves really is an incredible gift. And it costs nothing to, frankly, change your life for the better. And that's what people sometimes believe is that, you know, they have to pay for something, they have to do this very hard thing. And that's not to say manifesting isn't hard and you have to be engaged. But when you do set your intention, when you use the proper cues, if you will, to put your intention into your subconscious, that's when all of these other opportunities and benefits manifest themselves. Absolutely. So uh, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. I'll look forward to our next interaction. I wish you the best, and I'm sure our paths will keep crossing. 
Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.